As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. No better breeding ground for COVID-19 than a correctional facility. It's just like a petri dish of illness. There is absolutely no way to social distance in there. Do you know how it's getting in and, and, and how do you keep it out? I can't specifically identify, you know, one source. The inmates aren't bringing the COVID to themselves. It's the staff that are bringing it in. It's got to be coming in from staff. Like, if you expose to it, don't come to work. If we hadn't been so far short to begin with, COVID would have been a whole lot more manageable for us. They're bringing this in to other moms, children. You can't just play Russian roulette with people's lives. We people, too. We're not animals. COVID-19 keeps breaking into prisons all across Wisconsin. As December arrives, 25 adult institutions have active cases of the novel coronavirus, and three of those prisons still have hundreds of infected inmates. So how is the virus getting in? And what is the state doing to protect inmates, workers, and your community? From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson here with my co-investigator, Amanda St. Hilaire. Hi again, Amanda. Hi, Brian. Today is Tuesday, December 1st. As of this morning, more than 1,100 prison inmates across Wisconsin are actively fighting COVID-19 infections. And that sounds like a lot, but it's actually a dramatic drop from last week when the number peaked at well over 1,800. But with 25 different prisons still dealing with active cases, the trouble is far from over. Brian, your investigation found something that could be contributing to the severity of these outbreaks. Yeah, so really well before the COVID-19 pandemic took effect and took hold here in Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Department of Corrections has long been dealing with chronic staffing shortages. They just don't have enough workers to fill the positions that they have open. And there are a variety of reasons for that. If you talk to people who work in corrections, they'll say that the pay just doesn't justify the long hours and the uh, you know, the double shifts you've got to pull and, and so on and so forth. It's, it's hard work. And uh, for many people, the attraction is that it's a government job with retirement and a pension. But in the meantime, you've got to put in a lot of years of real hard, grueling work, and you might not have that time off with your family and so on and so forth. So they've just dealt with these staffing shortages. And uh, again, if you talk to some of those staff members, they'll say the state hasn't done enough to attract and recruit new people. So if you look statewide right now, Wisconsin prisons are uh, understaffed in many places by 20 or 30 percent based on the number of approved positions. So when you have those shortages, obviously you have a lot of people working overtime, a lot of people working double shifts, and uh, and that has uh, only made the situation with dealing with COVID-19 just that much worse. How so? So when you are 
trying to run a facility and you're short-staffed, if you have people, obviously, who are sick, you know you've got they've got to stay home. If, someone, if, if an employee has COVID-19, you can't let them come to work. But as we're all seeing, when we, you know, w- with jobs in almost any other field, if you have a, an employee who is exposed to COVID-19, to a COVID-positive person, they're also supposed to stay home, right? The CDC's guidance is if you've been exposed to a COVID-positive person, if you've had a close contact more than 15 minutes over a 24-hour period with someone known to be COVID-positive, then you're supposed to quarantine for 14 days. So that's two weeks out of work. At prison, you know, facilities all over Wisconsin, there are a lot of inmates or a lot of workers, I should say, who've had those kind of exposures, whether it's to inmates in their own facility, co-workers, or to people at home in their own households or in the communities where they work and, and live. So if you have workers who've been exposed to COVID-19, who've had close contacts, that's another whole set of employees who can't come to work if they have to quarantine for 14 days. Well, the Department of Corrections is doing is saying, look, if you've had an exposure, we've got to make an exception in cases where our staffing is simply too short because public safety is at risk here. You've got to have people staff the prison to a minimum level. So in many cases, workers who've been exposed to COVID, who have had these close contacts, are still being allowed to come into work because if they weren't allowed to work, then they might not have enough people to run the facility. So it sounds like what DOC is saying is we obviously have a safety issue with COVID. We have another safety issue if we are short-staffed. So when presented with these two things, we kind of need to weigh the two, right? That is certainly what they're saying. And they are, the Department of Corrections says that this is a guidance that they get from the Department of Health Services that says there are these essential and critical services uh, where workers, uh, police and firefighters, for instance, first responders, and then workers in correctional facilities where the usual practice of voluntary home quarantine um, may simply have to be set aside if staffing shortages would compromise the ability to protect the community, ability to protect other inmates just would affect public safety. So it's sort of the lesser of two evils, right? You you say, we, we've got these exposures. We know if you've been exposed, you're at a greater risk of having contracted the virus yourself. So we know that you could then bring it into the facility. On the other hand, we just don't have enough people. So if you're not at work, we've got a real problem. They say that they're making these exceptions on a case-by-case basis. And that sounds as though it's it's the rare exception when you say sort of case by case. It gives the impression that this is only where we're in a facility that really needs this. But what we are hearing from prison inmates and their family members, from some prison workers themselves, is this is not so much case by case, but it's happening routinely because these shortages are an issue at facilities all across the state. So if it depends on facility need, well, right now, virtually every one of these adult institutions needs workers. So it sounds as though COVID exposures to employees is almost a non-issue when it comes to the question of whether or not an employee is going to be allowed to come to work. And Brian, you spoke with a lot of people who are in prison. You spoke to people who work in prisons as part of your reporting. How were they describing their experiences? Well, certainly the inmates are concerned. Um, And, you know, it's difficult to do any story about 
conditions inside a prison when you're relying on the statements of prisoners. By definition, they are criminals. They are people who have done things wrong and, and, and earned their spot inside the facility in the vast majority of cases. I mean, I won't get into the issues of, of people who are in prison uh, due to false convictions, but let's assume that they're all there with valid convictions. They've done things to be there. So their credibility is already uh, somewhat questionable. But when you are not relying on the statements of one individual, when you're hearing from people in uh, multiple facilities all across the state simultaneously telling the same story. What we're hearing is that there are people all around them who are coughing and hacking and sick, and they're having to share shower facilities and bathroom facilities. Many of them express a concern that they don't have enough of the uh, cleaning supplies that they would feel comfortable having access to, although DOC says they have plenty of sanitizer and other uh, cleaning supplies available. Um, so we're hearing sort of disputes on that. Uh, but the biggest concern that they express is whether or not they are being housed in, in cells or in, in dormitories with other inmates who are already sick and they're not. So they write to their family members or they call their family members and say, I'm going to get this. They don't seem to care. I'm going to get sick. And I've heard from so many people with loved ones in these prisons who say, I'm worried my loved one's going to get it. What can you do? Can you do something about this? And then they write me a week later and say, hey, my son or my fiance or, or whoever that I told you about, they're COVID positive now too. So it does seem to be for many of these people just a matter of time before they themselves become infected. And obviously that's a stressful situation for the inmates. I'm hearing from these workers, it's a stressful situation for them too, because they keep going to work and they're surrounded by this. Well, and they're going to work, they're surrounded by it, and then they're potentially bringing it home and into their communities. Yeah. And so this is a two-way street, right? So you've got inmates and their loved ones who are concerned that staff members of the, are the source of these prison outbreaks, that, that it's the staff members who are mingling around in communities with, uh, uh, you know, huge community spread right now and then coming to work after having a close contact and being allowed to come into work and therefore bringing it in leading to an outbreak in the facility i had some family members say look you know the, the inmates aren't bringing covid to themselves although there's some question about how often transfers from county jails bring a covid positive inmate who may be asymptomatic into a state prison and there's an outbreak. Um, there are procedures that are supposed to guard against that as well. But you've got the one-way street potentially of staff members bringing it in and causing these outbreaks. On the other hand, you have the concern that if you're a staff member who's healthy and you go into a facility with 100, 200, 300 cases and you, you're told, no, you've got to go to work, um, then you might bring it home to your loved ones. And maybe you have someone at home who has a compromised immune system. Maybe you have uh, older relatives that you have regular contact with. Um, so there is the concern that when there's an outbreak uh, inside a facility, that that sort of becomes a breeding ground for employees to then bring home the illness, bring home the virus to their loved ones, to their communities, and only further the problems outside the facility. So it's not just a concern for the inmates inside. If you hear this, and I think it's a common reaction for some, is, well, prison outbreak doesn't affect me. But it could, because if you look at Racine as an example, the Racine Correctional Institution recently had 400 inmates with active COVID-19 infections. Think of how many employees are dealing and interacting with those inmates on a daily basis. Those employees go home. Those employees go to the grocery store, the same grocery store you shop at. They go to 
restaurants and other things. Um, so there is a, a real chance that that breeding ground inside the facility then only exacerbates the problem outside as well. One thing that startled me in watching your reporting was the response you got when you started asking questions about how Wisconsin prisons are keeping uh, the healthy separated from the sick. Yeah, and, and this was one of the biggest surprises to me as I was uh, talking to not only inmates and their family members, but to staff members. There were two correctional officers who talked to me. One uh, who did not want his identity to be known because he still works at Racine Correctional Institution, so he asked for his face to be disguised. Uh, but he talked pretty openly and candidly about his experiences. And another who is a um, a union member for AFSME uh, at Kettle Moraine Correctional Institution and has 22 years on the job as a correctional officer. And, and both of them described uh, something that I had not expected, which was I sort of assumed all along that the correctional officers must know who has COVID-19 and who doesn't so they can do their best to try to keep them apart. And we have already reported previously here on this podcast and on Fox 6 News that there's a challenge in keeping them apart when you get these big outbreaks because these facilities don't have hundreds and hundreds of separate isolated rooms they can keep people in to keep them apart. There's limited amount of space inside a prison, and most of these facilities are well beyond their design capacity in terms of the number of beds that are housing inmates right now. So there's already a challenge with space and the limitations, but I sort of made the assumption that they at least know who has it and who doesn't, and they're just trying to do their best to keep them apart. As I interviewed these DOC employees, I asked them, how do you keep the, the, the positive inmates apart from the ones who aren't? And they said, well, we don't know who has it and who doesn't because of HIPAA. Medical privacy means that the state or the administration, the healthcare workers, they don't relay that information to the frontline correctional staff and the sergeants who are running the day-to-day -day operation. So I'm still not entirely clear, even as we talk here on this podcast, how they are, how DOC is following through on what it says its policies are with regard to keeping these inmates separate, because they do say that all inmates who test positive for the coronavirus are supposed to be medically isolated from others. I've asked them what medically isolated means, and they sent me to a link to the CDC for a definition of medical isolation. They also quarantine those who've been exposed, who've had an exposure, say that their cellmate tests positive, but they test negative. Well, now you should be quarantined. So they have a group that are to be isolated, a group that are to be quarantined, and then you have the rest of the prison population. The assumption there seems to me that they must know who these different groups are and therefore be able to take actions to house them and keep them apart in, in common areas and things like that. But these workers tell me they don't know. And I did get a response from the Department of Corrections that supports that, that due to HIPAA, they do not share this information with the staff or they share it with them only on an as needed basis. Um, and, and I'm not who sure decides that. I, that's a great question. I, I want to actually, I'm trying to scroll through the answers that they gave me so I can read to you their wording. Um, this, this is the wording they gave me. My question was, I'm wondering if you can explain how DOC keeps sick and healthy inmates separate if frontline staff is not given any way to distinguish between them. And the answer was institution leadership 
uh, are, and, and DAI leadership, which means the institution, the, say we're talking Racine Correction, or the leadership at that institution. So the warden, maybe the people just below the warden, uh, the administrative staff, and then the state leadership, the Division of Adult Institutions, that they're making decisions about the people in our care. That's the term they use to, to describe inmates, people in our care. Um, that they're making those decisions in consultation with the Bureau of Health Services, so the health workers. But in compliance with HIPAA, we don't disclose personal health information, including, including COVID-19 positive or negative test results with correctional officers unless there is a need to know. And in those cases, any information shared would be the minimum amount necessary. Correctional officers may facilitate any necessary movement when and where directed by health professionals. So that sounds to me like they're saying that the healthcare staff is telling them who's got to go where. But I don't know to what level healthcare workers are really involved in the day-to-day -day, uh, decisions as to which inmates are housed in what cells, which ones can be let out of their cells to go use the shower facilities, the phones, that sort of thing. If you're in a dormitory-style section where all the beds are out in the open, how are they doing that? If the, if the officers don't know who's who, how are they keeping them apart? So I think there are a lot of questions as to how this is working. And one of the... One of the uh, uh, Correctional officers I spoke to, I asked that question, how do you do it? If you don't know, how do you keep them apart? And his response was, good question. Uh, he said they really have no game plan. And that term, game plan, matches a memo that was leaked to Fox 6 News at Wapon Correctional Institution, which has had two major outbreaks this year. Um, and uh, that uh, when that, was, that most recent outbreak was happening in October, the warden sent a memo to staff in which he indicated there is no game plan for this. So you really get the impression that even seven, eight, nine months into this pandemic, that the Department of Corrections is sort of somewhat flying by the seat of their pants and determining how to deal with some of these larger outbreaks. I know that different groups have proposed different solutions for this. Are, are any of them viable? Well, obviously you've got ACLU who has uh, you know made a lot of requests for the prison population to be reduced for people who are particularly near the end of their sentence or those who have uh, health uh, issues that make them, um, you know, a greater risk and maybe are less of a threat to the public on the outside because of those health issues. Uh, they've certainly made requests for work to be done to get some of those people out of these institutions, to put them on community supervision, probation and parole to try to alleviate the number of people inside, because then it makes it a little bit easier to try to enforce some of these social distancing uh, things. When you've got facilities that are 30 or 40 percent over their design capacity, which many of them are, uh, it, it's a lot harder to do. We have seen, and when I talked to uh, Makta Fesahaya, who's the director of the Division of Adult Institutions back in October, she did say that they have made some inroads there. They have reduced the population since before the pandemic began. And if you look at the numbers, their weekly counts on March 8th, there were something on the order of 23,200 inmates uh, at all the adult facilities in the state. Now it's down to about 20,500. So they've dropped around 2,700 inmates, maybe 10% or more of the prison population this year. So there has been a reduction, but there are calls still for more because if you even looking at the weekly counts now, they are still far beyond the design capacity in most of these facilities, and in particular, the facilities that have seen some of the biggest outbreaks. So there are more calls for that type of reduction to be done. There have been regular protests outside the governor's mansion 
in Madison. And I'm hearing from people who've participated in those protests who say they're getting no response from the Evers administration. Uh, I've, I've heard from mothers of inmates and, and, and wives and fiancés who've said they have written letter after letter after letter and they get form responses but no real concrete answers as to a plan. We reached out to Governor Evers to ask if they would talk to us for this story or if the governor would talk to us for the story, if they had any thoughts on on what can be done um, and got no response at all. Not an email back, not a phone call, not a statement, nothing. Because Department of Correction offer, operates under the Evers administration. Uh, correct. And, and Department of Corrections, uh, uh, to, to their uh, end, uh, Mokta Fesahaya said that they are limited in what they can do. Uh, there's only so much they can do. They can't just decide to open the gates and release people to let the to alleviate crowding. Each one of these cases was decided by a judge at the county level, at the circuit circuit level. So judges have to make these decisions. You can't just I mean, even the governor can't just say I'm letting a thousand people out of prison and here's their names. Uh, the, the judges have to make these decisions. What role the governor can play in facilitating some of that and encouraging that, um, you know, is is not entirely clear. But again, they didn't respond to us, so it's kind of hard to ask those questions when you get no response at all. I did also, for what it's worth, reach out to um, to uh, Re State Representative Michael Shra, who is uh, a representative in Oshkosh, where one of the prisons that's had a major outbreak this year is located. He is the chairman of the uh, Wisconsin State Assembly's. Uh, committee on Corrections. So this is right in his wheelhouse. I also asked his staff uh, for him to call me about this, wanted to ask some questions about these outbreaks and about the questions of alleviating the prison population and, uh, and got no response there either. So the leaders who have the ability to resolve this aren't responding to me. It doesn't sound like they're giving any real uh, satisfying responses to some of these family members. Um, and, uh, and you know, we, we see the outbreaks continuing. In the meantime, we have prisons that are understaffed and overcrowded with staff members who say they're essentially flying blind when it comes to COVID-19. That's that's right. And, and the state does say, DOC says that they have taken steps to try to alleviate the uh, the staffing issue. They are, you know, increasing, they're, they're boosting pay, they're offering, um, I believe I got, I had a couple of people contact me after uh, my story aired on the 25th, the night before Thanksgiving about this, um, saying that there has been some sort of a new effort to offer sort of an emergency uh, pay or, or hazard pay, uh, I, I suppose, to encourage people who are working additional overtime to come in and maybe alleviate some of the staffing issues. They, they, come off as as band-aids at this point in the process it doesn't seem like i mean they've known about these shortages these staffing shortages have been chronic they've been a problem since before the pandemic you've covered think, them we have and to think that a couple of uh you know things now are going to it, whatever happens it's not going to alleviate the staffing situation soon it's going to, even if the efforts they're making work they're going to take time to happen and when you talk to some of these uh, long-time veteran correctional officers, they say it's it's too little too late at this point. They should have done this a long time ago. Although the representative of AFSME said, you know, it's never entirely too late. I mean, whatever they do now could help going forward. They wish it had been done sooner. But it does seem like DOC is recognizing that staffing is an issue. They are trying to take steps to encourage people to make the job more attractive. But when we do stories like this, invariably, I mean, you imagine someone sitting at home right now who's thinking, well, I could, I could use a job and that sounds like they're, they're, you know, a boost in pay. Maybe that's a place to go. But when you hear that you might work 16 hour forced double shifts uh, in facilities with hundreds of sick inmates, 
that also makes the job a little less attractive maybe than some others. So it's tough. It's a challenging spot right now, both for the Department of Corrections and for the people who are, are working there. And then, of course, for all the people who are concerned about their loved ones on the inside. Brian, I know your inbox is full of messages from people in prisons, people who work at prisons, their family members. What are you looking at next? Because it sounds like this story is far from over. There's so many of the, and you're right, my inbox is flooded. I'm getting contacts from all over the state. And in many cases, it's not new information. It's just more people saying the same thing. They, they're worried. They're scared. They want something more to be done. But one of the things I, I do want to know, we, we've heard repeatedly from some inmates who've reached out directly and then from family members of inmates that staff members are not routinely wearing the PPE that they are required to wear. And we hear that anecdotally, but there's no way for us to prove that. There aren't cameras on the inside we have access to. We don't have uh, easy access to records that would tell us that's the case. And again, taking the word of a prison inmate has never uh, been something that you can rely on individually. Their credibility is already damaged. So we're trying to find ways that we can measure, we can document. And if you're listening to this podcast, if you know of an inmate, for instance, who's filed a formal complaint about this and you see that process, one of the things we're looking at is what kind of complaints have been filed by inmates? Do we see patterns? Um, have there been any disciplinary uh, actions taken against staff members who refuse to wear uh, uh, masks? And again, I can't verify this, but we have had one allegation at one facility that uh, there was a, um, a staff member, either a sergeant or perhaps a command staff above them, who made the comment that, I don't care if you're wearing your masks or not, as long as you're wearing them in front of the cameras. And that's a pretty outrageous allegation, we have no way to know if that's true. Um, so we're hearing those things. I think we'd like to know just how uh, strictly staff is following or being required to follow some of these what seem to be basic safety guidelines, um, especially in facilities with a COVID outbreak. People obviously ought to be wearing PPE. They're required to. One other thing is uh, whether or not these uh, workers who are sent out to hospitals with sick inmates are being given the proper protective equipment fit tested N95s, for instance, when they're in a COVID-19 hospital wing for hours at a time because they have to stand vigil over an inmate who is ill and is in the hospital. We've heard complaints from workers who say that they're sent with nothing more than a simple barrier mask you or I might wear to the grocery store while all the people around them who are healthcare workers are wearing this fit tested equipment. So uh, the, the Department of Corrections says that they do supply N95s for those situations and that those N95s are to be fit tested, are to be suggests that they are supposed to be, but we're hearing they haven't been in some cases. So is that happening routinely? Another question for us to yeah, look at. What, what's on paper and what happens in real life aren't always the same thing. Absolutely. And I, again, appeal to those who are listening. If you know of, of things that are happening on the inside, particularly if you have documentation, verification, you know, reach out to us and we're going to give you that email address in just a moment. There's a lot more to dig into here. And of course, that's why we're going to keep talking about this. Brian, you're going to keep reporting on it. And we're going to continue bringing you these twice weekly episodes of Open Record as we cover the pandemic, reckless driving, police community relations, unemployment, so much more. If, if there's a topic you want us to discuss, an issue you think we need to investigate, send us an email. You can send your emails to fox6investigators at fox.com. Again, that's fox, the number six, investigators at fox.com. As always, thank you to the people who make this podcast possible. That includes producer Pete, Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and Sarah Smith. And please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't done that already. 
you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brian Polson for Amanda St. Hilaire. We'll be back with our next regularly scheduled episode on Thursday.